Welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, former NHL player Brendan Nicholson joins the show. As a junior, he represented Canada at the World Under 18, winning a silver medal, and he won a Memorial Cup as a member of the Vancouver Giants. In the NHL, Brendan was a teammate of Ryan Getzlaff, Corey Perry, Stephen Stamkos, and Jerome Ginlow. Also, Brendan played in Europe, representing Canada again, this time in the Spengler Cup, as well as winning a German League championship with Adler Mannheim. His sister, Megan Nicholson, won two Olympic gold medals, two national championships, and was a finalist for the Patty Kathmeyer Award, which is the women's hockey version of the Heisman Trophy. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Thank you for being here. In addition to your sister, your dad and your great uncle also played in the NHL. So how did the hockey bug bite you? I think you joked that it's in your blood, but I guess it really is. So just with my dad playing and then hear about my uncle as well and having won a Calder Trophy, having won a Stanley Cup, having played with Gordie Howe and as a kid seeing his name on the Stanley Cup. And then obviously growing up in Canada, you're going to start skating at a young age. And then my sister being an athlete as well. I think it was just all around me. So I was in a good environment to improve, to get better. It was hockey on TV because everyone knows the game, follows the game. So I think you're just sort of surrounded by it. One little bone to pick there with the intro for my sister. It's three Olympic medals. It's two golds and a silver. With you and your sister, not necessarily limited to hockey, how competitive were the two of you growing up? Not as much as you think. It was always very much a supportive relationship I think because we're about two and a half years in age separated we never played against each other never played with each other so we were never sort of indirectly in a formal sense on the ice together we'd obviously see each other on the ice and see any accomplishments and anything like that each other would have so you'd want to keep up right and you would see the work ethic the effort that each other were putting in so I think it's contagious in that aspect but it wasn't too terribly competitive to be honest with you it's always just mostly supportive and wanting each other to get better and be the best player we could be. How were your parents able to manage the different schedules, being practices, games, and all that stuff? So there's three of us. So my oldest sister, she didn't really gravitate towards athletics as much as us, but I often joke that she's the smartest of the three of us by a mile, but she had her activities and things that she was involved in. So yeah, then add that with my sister and I both being aspiring players from a young age. I think it's a juggling act. And like most parents, they give up a lot of themselves to raise their kids, right? So it's a pretty selfless endeavor. And I can think of my dad and the amount of hours he worked and same with my mom being a teacher as well. So they both worked and three of us and all of our activities for sure they gave up a lot of their stuff but our activities our endeavors I think they become fans and all that so it becomes their hobbies in a way so I think they would be the better ones to ask how they juggle it but and I think it was hectic times I think it was busy times but you ask them now and they miss it so that's sort of an interesting dynamic of it all. At an early age what kind of advice did your dad give you about trying to take the next steps to get to the next level whether that's under 18, junior team, AHL, et cetera. It was a perfect thing because of his work schedule, because of us three kids and our stuff. He never coached me formally. So it was always sort of an outside voice, an independent voice away from my coaches. So I had a really good mix of obviously his background and then my day-to-day coaches on my team. So I got a lot of really good feedback and a lot of different inputs. But I think he's very much an analytical mind where breaking things down component by component. So I think we sort of watched me and understood my game a little bit. It was like, okay, I was a good skater from a young age, for example. So if you're skating, say a seven or eight, but another aspect is a two or three, how do we build them up? You may never get them to the same level as your strengths, but in his mind and breaking things down, breaking the components down and that very dissective nature to handling things is definitely something I took throughout my career and in my life and everything I do now. So very strategic approach to things is what I sort of learned in attacking things piece by piece. And then just encouragement. Parents were always our biggest fans. And so you feel that support and that care. And so along with that analytical approach, I think it was a good combo for us and our development, both as athletes and as people. For you, whether it be growing up or in your professional career, what was that element for you that you were constantly working on trying to get better? I think it was more of a character trait. I was a skinny, 
kind of shy meat kids. So developing a bit of, and this again is sort of analytical approach. The expression we use is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, how you develop that persona on the ice and how you can almost fake it in a way, but by faking it and being mindful of it, you can develop it, you can improve it. It may not ever come natural to you. And it never did with physical fighting, all that part of the game. It was never something that came natural to me, but it was something that I definitely got a lot better as my career went on. And my last few years of playing, I think coaches described me as a pretty hard guy to play against. And so from where I was as a kid, I think that's a huge step for me. And so it was something that I learned. It took me way longer than I would have liked to, but because it was an unnatural thing, I would have to put myself in situations where I had to. So I wouldn't ever go chase a fight, but how do I get a guy to come after me? So I have to fight because I knew it was in me. I knew I had that. I wasn't a coward. The guy jumped me. I wasn't going to turtle, but I wasn't necessarily going to instigate the situation. So how do I create the situation? And so that's the way I sort of tried to look at it. And again, that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of mentality was something that I remember my dad and I would talk about when I was younger. And so that was definitely the aspect of the game that was the least natural to me, the skating, stick handling, all that stuff, because that's just effort. That's just reps. And so those other components are a little tougher because they're more of your nature, how you are as a person, right? So those are a little tougher to flip. And then I think once I got to the NHL level, my hockey sense, ability to make the right decisions over and over again, because when you get to that level, it's about not necessarily making the high-end plays, but it's making the right play at the right time. Once I got to the National Hockey League level, that's something that did lack for me a bit. And so that would be ways that you watch video, you learn your opponent, things like that that can help you make better reads more often. When it came to the fighting aspect, what was the fight that you remember the best? Oh, well, it's one where I got the doors beat off me. It was shortly after one of my first call-ups to Anaheim. We were playing Columbus. We were up by two. So again, not smart. You don't fight when your team's up two goals. But Derek Dorsett, a really hard-nosed guy, a really honest player. Played against him in junior, actually. He was on Medicine Hat, who we played against with Vancouver in not only the Memorial Cup, but the finals before that. But a really good hockey player, too. He was really good for Med Hat, and he was really good in pro hockey as well. And tough as nails too, but he took a run at Scott Niemeyer, who was my defense partner for that shift. He'd done it a few times. And again, like I mentioned earlier, I was looking for situations to get involved, get physical. And so I'd seen him run around a bit. I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this. So I go chase him and chase a guy like that who knows what he's doing. And it's not smart. So he cracked me one right on the left ear to start. I didn't know he could throw lefts, but being a hard-nosed, tough guy like him, I shouldn't have been surprised and shattered my eardrums. So everything's ringing and sort of disoriented. And so I just sort of held on as he fed me a bunch of rights after that. Lucky I protected myself pretty well so that I didn't sustain any terrible damage, I guess you could say, but it was definitely a bad look. And to this day, not exactly my proudest moment, but I went after it. It went south, but that's unfortunately one that I remember the most. I remember him at the end of his career in Vancouver where he had a really good offensive year before injuries kind of took their toll. He was a tough, exactly. rugged dude to play against. Well, absolutely. And it's tough to see when the injuries sort of take hold like that. But the way he played the game and how hard he played the game, I respected him from a young age. So it was great to see him have a really good career. And guys like that who have had injuries, you hope they're doing well now. You mentioned that your eardrum got shattered. Was that something that cost you to miss some time or did you get right back at it? No, got right back at it. You collect yourself afterwards and sort of lick your wounds a bit and you get back out there. I don't know how I play the rest of the game. I can't imagine I play too well, <laughs> but I think unless something's broken or really damaged, I think you go back out there, right? Just because you don't have an excuse not to. So part of the learning curve, I guess, being in those situations and building a bit of resolve that it's like, oh, I got beat up pretty bad, but I'm okay. So you keep going. Going back to your junior career, what was it like to represent Canada and wear the Maple Leaf? Oh man, that was sort of the times where it really first hit me that I could be a player. Because growing up, I was always a good player and I would play on sort of the top teams in St. Albert in my hometown, but I was never the best. I was never really a can't miss guy or anything, but I just sort of kept plugging along, kept getting better, kept staying on these top teams. So I got good coaching and I was playing against other good young players and I was a six-round Bantam draft pick, so in Canada, our junior leagues do a draft when kids are 14, so I was a six-round pick, so by no means a hot shot prospect, but then I got a really good break, 
was drafted in this Bantam draft by the Portland Winterhawks. And I was lucky that some of their other draft picks ahead of me the year before in that draft didn't really pan out. So I was able to go play major junior hockey at 16 years old, which it's tough to do, right? I was probably a little over my skis there a bit, but from a young age, I had a pretty mature game. And again, that probably ties back to my dad and his analytical approach and you know how we evaluate our games and all that. So I had a fairly mature game at a young age. So I was able to jump into the Western League, even though physically, a lot of the ways, I probably wasn't ready. And then I played well, had a good year there. There was a few setbacks here and there, but overall, I had a really good first year. And then, you know, invited to Canada's under-18 team. So it's just like, holy crap, I got a chance at this because all of a sudden you're with the best basically 17 year olds in Canada. So never sort of regarded myself in that ilk, that category. So it was just a surprise to me is it might've been for them. So looking back at that, that was sort of when I started to think like, okay, like I could be a player here, right? Cause these are really, really good players that are around me. So just that aspect of it personally, and then throwing the Canadian Jersey and watching the world juniors and Spengler Cups and the World Cups and all the different events where you see that Canadian emblem. I don't remember the exact feeling when you see that jersey. I think you're just excited to be part of the team and you're thinking about all the things you need to do to play well, to prepare and all those things. But it was for me personally, that was sort of what stands out the most was getting to that level and being able to play at that level and do well at that level. Holy crap, I could be a player. On that team, I mean, there were some pretty good players. Carrie Price was on that team, Mark Stahl. I think yep. Cal Clutterbuck and the late Luke Bourdon were all part of that team. Chris what Patan. was it like to kind of be around them and get to meet all of these, what I would call A-list players and be a part of things? In thinking about it here, I think a lot of those guys, they probably were sort of can't miss guys. And just seeing their attitude, their mentality from a young age was something that I'm sort of dealing with a different athlete here, right? I'm dealing with a much more serious sophisticated athlete in a sense and I know we were still only 17 years old but I think these guys have been really top end players growing up and so they had a different mindset to them which for me it was really eye-opening and a killer instinct that they had and so again as far as my maturity and my mentality seeing how they approach things seeing how they view things and the confidence the swagger that they had for lack of a better term was something that I envied and I continue to envy again I think as I mentioned it wasn't something that came particularly naturally to me so it was another aspect where I could be around really good people to learn from and see how they attack things. At that tournament there were some pretty good players representing other countries I think Phil Kessel was there Nicholas Backstrom I think yep. Martin Hansel was there as well. Yeah I remember him well. What was yeah. it like to play against that level of competition internationally? Because in the junior league as well, they're good. It's still not that level of competition. It's definitely another step. The newness of it all. I'd never been in Europe before. You're in the Czech Republic in the middle of basically July, right? So it's humid. It's hot. The big rinks, the older buildings, a lot of their facilities there haven't been updated quite as much as ours in North America have. So that's eye-opening. And I remember, I think one of our first practices, they filled up our water bottles for practice with carbonated water, I remember. And then we had to go to a store and find still water. But seeing those other young players and Martin Hansel, how big he was, jeepers. I think he was about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, already at that time. I think he topped out a little bit bigger than that. And Phil, obviously, the way he skates and shoots, you knew about him, but just some of the European players and being on the big ice too, that dynamic. So just an overall really eye-opening experience is what really stood out for me. Did you get a chance to see any of the sites go be a tourist as a teenager? We got a day off where we went and toured around, walked around Prague for a bit, seeing all the old buildings, all the old monuments and structures and everything like that. Again, in North America, things are a lot newer, right, in general. So you don't get as much of the historical buildings from that level of history, I guess you could say, not discounting our own history over here. But in Europe, the landmarks are definitely sites for sure. And just the food, too, is a big change. And the travel over there, which it's like, holy crap, you think you're there, but then you got another four-hour flight. The beds were tiny. I'm used to North American hotel rooms where their queen beds are bigger. But these European hotel rooms are like a closet. That's not a negative thing about Europeans at all. I hope it doesn't come across that way. It's just from being over here, it's a change. That's for sure. There was a lot of things that you had to just take them as they go and do your best with trying to sort it all out. Going back to your North American junior career, what was it like to move away at age 16 to not only just a different city, but a different country? 
it was a long way, yeah, going from Edmonton to Portland, Oregon. But I think I had an independence to me, so I was lucky. I never really got homesick. Portland would hold its training camp in a little mountain town called Kimberly, B.C., and so it was just sort of halfway between basically my hometown and Portland, just because to drag all the young players down to Portland, it's tough to do. They figured they could get us all together in, in Kimberly, BC for training camp. So I remember my dad and I, we packed two suitcases, one for training camp, one if I made the team. Because going to camp, I still didn't know if I was going to make the team. Growing up, all the teams I mentioned, I played on the top teams, but I was always fighting for my job every year. So I never took anything for granted. So that was a moment grabbing that other suitcase out of my dad's car to throw the team one to go down to Portland. Because at that point, I wanted to progress my career. I wanted to make that step. And so to do it at 16, I was excited. I was pumped to make that jump. And my dad had just retired. So I went down with the team, but then he fell down just because he wanted to watch. And I remember my first night in my billet home. I'd never lived with a billet before. never anything like that. I got horrifically sick. And I remember calling my old man in tears early, early in the morning, because I've been at the toilet all night. And I remember I just saying, well, I want to go home. I want to go home. And he's like, oh, hold on, hold on. What's going on? So he came and grabbed me and then went to his hotel room. And I remember just like sleeping for, for a day and a half. And then I got up, felt a little bit better, still lethargic, went to practice the following day. So two days later, and then just started to go from there. And But again, other than that, I would say that was my only homesick experience I had in junior. So I was really lucky that way. And then just having turned 16, moving away from home. If you ask my mom to this day, she still feels like she was robbed two years with me, but she knew it was something that I wanted and needed to do. So obviously she was a thousand percent behind it, but as a mom and her youngest and only boy, she missed me, that's for sure. You mentioned the Billet family, which is something somewhat unique to the Canadian Junior League. How does that whole process work? And did they become like a second family to you? I think I had various throughout my career. I think the teams just sort of look for different families in the neighborhood. I would say for Americans to think more about it, like you're almost like a foreign exchange student. Because I was high school age, I had to enroll and go to high school there in Portland. So it's different going into somebody else's home and via their space and trying to feel comfortable. And just to think of that, for them to do that, to take somebody in that they don't know. There are some that I have remained in touch with and really close with. A family there in Portland, their son was in my wedding and... They came to my wedding and I haven't seen them in too many years. So I got to make a point to get down there again. But for sure, you click with people and they all sort of impact you in different ways and you learn different things from them. And then you're just appreciative that they're welcoming enough to have you into their home and have you live with them and put a roof over your head and feed you and all those things. So I can't thank all the billets I had enough. They're all great to me in various ways. What was the favorite memory that you have about playing with Portland? At the time, I think now they just play in the old arena there in Portland. They got the two arenas in Portland are right next to each other. They got the old Veterans Memorial Arena, and then they got the brand new, I think it's called the Moda Center now. It was called the Rose Garden at the time. And so that's a big NBA spectator arena. And so I was coming from playing in minor hockey rinks in Canada with a few bleachers here and there. And so you go to Portland, and Seattle was our sort of main rival. If they were in town on Saturday, you're getting eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people or more. So from coming and playing minor hockey to all of a sudden playing in these big spectator arenas. So that was sort of like, I'm a real hockey player now type of thing, right? So that was a pretty cool thing for me at first. And then even in that whole division, we had great buildings to play in and good fan bases. So playing in front of American fans too was a different experience. In Canada, people know the game to another level. I know in a lot of places in the U.S., they know the game really well too, but it's a much different fan playing in the U.S. versus Canada. In Canada, I find on average they're analyzing the play, they're dissecting it. In the U.S., they understand the game, some parts not as much, but it's more of an entertainment thing. Goal, hit, fight, everybody's out of their seat, and they got the cowbells and all those things going. So it's a little bit more of a livelier crowd, I would say, in general. That was eye-opening, the buildings, the fans. Those are cool experiences for sure. You get traded to Vancouver. What's it like being a junior player to get traded and then having to move back home to Canada, hockey mad city, kind of very different yeah. from what you were playing in in Portland from that aspect. Exactly. It was familiar, but then totally different too. So I love playing in Portland. I love being a winter hawk. Trade was a shock to me. I was pretty upset about it. It was a tough pill for me to swallow. Young player, you're thinking, ah, they don't want me. But looking back now, it's like, well, I was traded for two players and a prospect. So obviously I was sought after. And so Vancouver stuck their neck out for me. So they were great to me too. I think they knew 
after I got traded that it was a hard transition for me. It was a very different culture in Vancouver. The coach there was a guy by the name of Don Hay and very much an old school guy, very throwback. So that was a tough transition for me, really, really hard. It was a great culture, but it was so new and so different that I had a tough time at first. It was difficult for me. My coach in Portland was a gentleman by the name of Mike Williamson, and he was awesome to me. He treated me really good. He pushed me, but he also gave me a great opportunity to get better, to play lots of minutes. But when I went to Vancouver and Don and the culture that they'd built there in those two years of Vancouver and the way Don pushed me and everything that you sort of experienced I had a bad injury the first year too there. So those are two pivotal years in my hockey career and my life for sure. They definitely changed me a lot. I'm thankful I went there. So you mentioned Vancouver being hockey mad and, and all that. They just come off from the NHL lockout. So the Vancouver Giants were the team in Vancouver at the time because the Canucks obviously hadn't played. So again, we were averaging nine, 10,000 fans a game and we had good teams and Think back how many situations I got fortunate to be in, both from a professional you know, hockey playing development side, but also personally too, because Don pushed me every single day and a lot of days were hard for me. But now looking back on it and looking back at my career, I don't think I would have had the career I did. The resolve that he built in me through those two years, the thick skin he built in me, the other elements I mentioned earlier on, how he helped round out my game and push me to be a better, different player because he knew that at the next level, those faults that I had were going to show up even more so. So at the time when I went to Vancouver, I'd been a second round draft pick. A lot of players might not get pushed like that, but I'm thankful for him. And a lot of days where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it through this, to be honest with you. And that's where my dad came in and he encouraged me, okay, sleep on it. Let's talk about it. And you just go back to work. Those things are instilled in you and definitely have been a big part of my life and my hockey career. I would imagine playing for Don Hay probably prepared you for playing for Randy Carlisle later in your career. Oh, Randy, John Hines, all those guys, they were kittens in a sense. They weren't kittens, but it seemed like it was after being in that environment and very much a culture of being accountable for you and your play, your actions, your habits. So when I went to those environments later in my pro career, not so much with Randy and Anaheim, that was a different dynamic, but with John Hines later on in Wilkes-Barre, I thrived in those environments. Guy Boucher and the structure, the discipline, yeah, I learned to love those environments. So I guess Don and how he operated and how we did things in Vancouver, I almost got a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome in that I learned to love those things. I learned to love the structure. I learned to love routine and discipline. Those are things that I leaned on. I know somebody who played under Hay, and Hay once said to him, if you're hurt, you don't get an ice pack. You can just go lie on the ice. That sounds like Don right there. But I think, honestly, that that approach is something that's a little lost nowadays. I understand that things evolve and how we coach players and how we mentor them. You have to change with the time, right? You can't be completely stuck in your old ways. But I think a lot of young players should be in that environment, should be pushed like that because I think it is so good for them. It is hard. It's not fun. It is work. And so it's a little bit of a lost thing nowadays, right? And I think you can blend a little bit of the old school and the new school and find a happy medium where you learn some of those pivotal traits and habits and characteristics. But at the same time too, I understand. I don't want to sound like an old dinosaur here, but you have to evolve and adapt. I think you see that now with Don. I think he's the assistant coach in Kamloops in the Western League. And I know some families who their kids play under him now and they talk about how great he is with them. So it's great to see that he's sort of been able to blend the two and just shows that nobody's ever done getting better. You're never done learning and adapting and evolving. So it's pretty cool to hear that. If you take a look just at the team that you were on that won the Memorial Cup, you have guys like Luchit, Kane, Cody Franson, I think, was on that team. I mean, there were probably 10 future NHLers, so there's something to be said for all that discipline and his style of coaching at the time. Yeah, and I'll go one pass. There was 12 guys off a Memorial Cup winning team that ended up playing one game in the NHL or more. So you think about one junior hockey team in one year to have 12 guys dress and play in at least one NHL game is wild. Usually top teams, you maybe get three or four, but again, you can draw that directly to Don and everyone there. Scott and Craig Bonner, Jason Ripplinger, the owner Ron Toygo, everyone there, all together, they created such a demanding, successful environment. So the guys were able to take their natural God-given ability and work ethic and then be in that environment. So it was a perfect combo for those guys. And so they get to pro hockey and you have these habits that a lot of the young players don't have, game management, things like that, that allowed them to get not only chances at the next level, but get to the National Hockey League. So I think that's a big part of it. Get drafted by Anaheim, who a couple of years later ends up winning a cup. 
what's it like to be part of an organization that wins the cup and then you're coming in shortly thereafter trying to make an impact? I often say like a lot of people with Anaheim were great to me, but it probably wasn't the best fit for me as a player looking back because they just won a cup. And then I was sort of coming in a couple of years after they won a cup into being a pro hockey player. So they were still in the win now mode and the way that they had a vision of how they wanted their team to be built based on what they'd done when they won a cup. So you can't fault them. But for me, it was always trying to adapt my game, evolve my game to them, to be the player that they kind of needed me to be and how to fit in their organization. And I always felt with Anaheim, it was always a bit of an uphill battle as far as trying to adapt. That was my mentality. It was like, Randy's the coach. How does he need me to play? What does he need me to do? How do I be that player? So that's a tough thing to do in hindsight, but it was my mentality that, well, he's the coach, he decides. So how do I fit in with that club? Looking back, it could have been more of how can they fit me and how can I be in my skill set worked into the organization? And, and I know they probably did that. I know they worked with me for years and Brian Burke and Bob Murray and everyone there was really good to me, but just their overall build of the team, I would say, wasn't a great fit for me. And that's no fault of theirs. I'm not blaming anybody for anything. I joke with people, the only reason why I didn't play more NHL games is my own fault. So I got nobody else to blame but me. But I would say a better fit might have been a helpful environment for me. But the players I got to be around, Scott Niedermeyer, Chris Pronger, Getzoff and Perry, their careers were just sort of taking off at that time. J.S. Shiger, and then my last year in Anaheim, Cam Fowler came in and he was really a difference maker right away. I'm just living in California and all that stuff was pretty cool. So it was a great opportunity. Thankful for that. I learned a lot from it about myself, my game and all that. So good experience for sure. Myself being a hockey junkie, I'm curious. What was it like to have a front row seat to watch Timo Solani? How do I forget Timo Solani, right? His skating and he used this goofy stick and seemed to work. What I remember most about Timo was just what kind of guy he was and the personality he had and he was so good to everyone on the team, whether top-end guy or a new guy, young guy. Just had this really positive, happy personality. So it was a good balance because Randy was a hard-nosed, serious guy, right? So you get a guy like Timo who's sort of laughing and having a good time. Not to say he was willy-nilly about things, but it was a little bit lighter mood around him a lot of times. So it was a good balance there, I think, having guys like that around. And I'm sure even Randy would agree with that, that having some balance in that sense was really good. Are you still close with anybody that you played with in Anaheim? My Vancouver teammate there and our captain of Vancouver, Brett Fetchling, was part of the organization. So him and I probably haven't kept up as much over the years as we like, but it's funny. I saw him this past summer and he just hopped right into it. And we lived together my first year pro there in Portland. So he was an excellent captain and created a really great career for himself. He wasn't drafted. He wasn't sort of a big heralded guy coming out of junior, but his heavy, hard, disciplined game and underrated abilities, I think, really led to a good career. And he had an awesome career over in Germany as well. And then Bobby Ryan, I talked with him here and there. It's cool to hear that you still keep in contact with Bobby Ryan because hockey fans kind of know somewhat of what he's been going through. But that's a guy that you just want to see do well. Getting to know him, obviously, in the summer training camps that I'm And then we were both down in Portland for a stretch there in the American League. He should have never been in the American League, but that's uh, what they thought was best for him at the time. But one of those personalities, he's friends with everyone. So another guy that I'd like to keep up with more, but I actually just touched base with him a few months ago. So it was good to hear from him. He's bouncing back. Seems like he's doing well. So you see people go through tough times that you know it's hard, but you're always following and watching and hoping the best for them. It sounds like he's doing better. That's really good to hear. I always thought if he didn't have the off-ice issues, and a lot of those were not his own doing, he would have been a Hall of Famer. He was a talent for sure, and his size, his abilities, everything, right? He still had a heck of a career, though. Made a lot of money, and money that changed generations. So that's no small stick. And he might even say, hockey-wise, he would have liked to have had a bit more. But I think from a life perspective, it's a lot of positives. You mentioned this a little bit, your Anaheim career maybe wasn't the right fit. You end up in Calgary. How did that whole thing happen? And were you kind of caught off guard by that move as well? Yeah, a little bit, just because I was going into my fourth year pro at the time. I made the team out of camp at Anaheim, but we had a horrific start. I thought I was playing okay, but obviously when the team's playing poorly, nobody looks good, right? So I played about a five or seven game stretch there at the start of my fourth year pro. And with your fourth year pro, you become waiver eligible. So to send you down the minors, you have to go through waivers first. So 
the team's not doing well. You just make changes, make changes. I disagree with that one to this day, but well, it was just after training camp. So it was sort of in a lucky time because around training camp, there's a ton of guys going on waivers. So you usually just go through because everybody else is just trying to get their own house in order. But this was about two, three weeks after training camps and into the season. So I think Calgary at the time had some young players on the back end that were going to be players, but maybe weren't quite ready. So I was on waivers and Daryl Sutter and Brent Sutter there picked me up and I came in, played pretty regularly at the start. I was sort of an injury fill and then I had some poor performances. And so I worked my way out of the lineup. The players came back from injury. And so then the rest of that year, boy, I think I healthy scratched about 50, 55 games a year. So that year was a struggle for me. I probably should have been down in the minors playing, but they kind of needed the extra body around. So yeah, that year was tough, but again, you learn a lot and you try and make the best of situations. Ryan McGill was our defense coach at the time, and he was really, really good to me. He knew I wasn't getting the game reps, and so you would do extra conditioning after practices on game days to keep your lungs, to keep your fitness and all those things going. And usually the coach will just put you on a line and make you do line sprints back and forth, back and forth. But he would always do drills that involve pucks and sort of specific drills to my position, but we were doing them in a conditioning form, if that makes sense. So he was trying to keep me ready, keep me going. And he's always had my back with things. He was pretty positive with me for the most part. So I've always appreciated that and how good he was to me there. But again, I guess in Calgary, I didn't play well. You play one out of every 15, 20 games. It's tough to get the mind going and have good minutes. It's a tough situation to be in, but that's the reality of it, right? It's the NHL. Nobody cares if you haven't played in two weeks or three weeks or whatever, right? You have to go out there and perform. And at the end of the day, I didn't. I didn't play well when I got into the lineup here. And so that just sort of precipitates your exit out of town. From a mental standpoint, how were you able to deal with being a healthy scratch so often? My approach was, okay, like, how do I make the best of this? How do I treat games like my practices? How do I stay ready? What can I do? Whether it's in the gym, can I get a little stronger? Because you don't get much time to train in the gym, so you might lose some muscle mass. So I thought, okay, maybe I can keep some muscle mass on. Maybe I can get a little extra workout. In. Maybe I can get a little stronger. And then with the practices, try and treat them like games. Every rep, have a good rep. Go 100 miles an hour, right? So just try and make the best of it. Stay as ready as you can. It's not a good situation, but... It's the NHL and you need bodies around, you need people around to be ready. And that's an unfortunate reality for players. I know lots of players go through it now. And so stay as positive as you can and find lighter moments, things like that. I know when I was in town here in Calgary, I wasn't playing that night after I do my workouts and extra conditioning. My wife and I would go bowling some game days just to keep it lighter during the afternoon, just because I wasn't going to have my normal pregame nap because why I wasn't going to play. I was still ready to play if something happened during the day where they needed me. I wasn't out gallivanting around, but we would definitely try and keep it light. I was living in the hotel, so get out of the hotel room. So little things like that. And so I think when it got nicer out, we'd go to the batting cages and try and hit a few dingers and just things like that, right? You're just grasping at straws a little bit, but you try whatever you can. Well, who's the better bowler, you or your wife? I don't even know. I don't think either one of us are very good, to be honest with you, but I'll earn some brownie points and say she's a sneaky good bowler. Although you were sitting a lot, what was it like to kind of see guys like Aginla and Bo Meester work day-to-day, not so much necessarily in the game situation, but practices and stuff like that? Obviously, again, the, the legend. For me, being a defenseman, though, it was Jay Bollmeister, Robin Regeer. Mark Giordano's career was just sort of starting to flourish there. And uh, everybody's seen the career he's had and continues to have. Jeepers, he's 40 years old and still playing. So watching the defenseman a lot, just trying to see what I could get from them and gain from them. And then Maggie with his skill set and his mix of toughness and scoring ability. It was a rare combo at the time, and it's even more rare now, obviously. So he was a special athlete. One of those guys at that elite level, there's something different about him. Seeing how they operate, seeing how they do things, go about things. It was pretty cool to see and very fortunate to do so. How did you end up in Tampa after the year in Calgary? So the following year, basically a week into training camp, I got sent down to the minors. They were ready to move on. Went down to the minors. We were at Abbotsford at the time and coached there, Troy Ward. And first day I got there, Troy Ward said to me, he's like, we're going to sort of rebuild your career. We're going to get your career back on track. And so he was awesome to me from day one. Played me 25 to 30 minutes a night, all situations. Put me in a leadership position. But then the other defensemen started to go up and I wasn't going up, even though I thought I was playing awesome and a big part of the team and we were playing well. So then I think a trade just was facilitated through 
there just not being an opportunity there for me and Calgary wanting to move on. Right after New Year's, I get a call in the morning that I've been traded to the Tampa Bay Lightning. So their farm team was in Norfolk. So I'm like, okay, and when am I going to Norfolk? They're like, no, 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 they're calling you right away. You're going right up. Oh, okay. You get traded and you get called up. It was a big one. So I remember getting the call that morning, had to go in the rink, grab my stuff. And then I'd got an apartment there. So my wife, girlfriend at the time, because I had to get on a flight to meet the Lightning in Montreal by noon that day. And it was about eight in the morning. So packed up whatever I could and then just left her there with the car and the apartment. And so she had to put that one. And then I didn't play the first game against Montreal, but then I think I pretty much played every game the rest of the season. I played 41 games the rest of that year. I was in the lineup. I was an every night guy. Guy Boucher was a coach there. So again, I mentioned him earlier, just structured, discipline, all those things, which I thrived under. So I had a great finish to the year there. The team wasn't sort of on the upswing yet, but that was a great, great opportunity for me. And Guy Boucher was awesome to me in that regard. So, and then ended up signing my one and only one-way contract the next year. And so for people who don't know, a one-way contract is I make X dollars, whether I play in the NHL or the AHL. If I play on a two-way contract, you'll make X amount smaller in the American League and you'll make X amount more in the NHL. But I was on a one-way contract, basically means they're expecting you to be on their team. So that was an exciting moment for me, but then the lockout hits. So that was not good for me, but got to go over to Sweden, play there for a couple months that was really cool and so came back and then just again because of the short season short training camp I didn't play as well as a year before just kind of lost my spot and then ended up going down to Syracuse that next year when you get moved whether it's to Calgary or Tampa what's the whole acclimation process like because I don't think fans realize that when you get moved you're meeting a whole new set of teammates you're going to a different city you probably don't know it how does that whole process work and how long does it take? Well, you get pretty adaptive at a certain point. You get used to it. At that point, I've become a little bit of a journeyman. So you start to just roll with it. And when's my flight? Where do I got to go? And then thankful that my wife was so amazing at taking care of a lot of those little things away from the rink, moving us, getting on planes, driving places herself. I remember when I got sent to Syracuse, so that was in February. She had to drive the car up 20 hours from Tampa Bay to Syracuse by herself. And I think the last six hours, it was snowing sideways. So she had to do that on her own, right, with a packed car of all of her stuff and that whole rigmarole. So I think it's those things that the spouses and the families that have to endure, have to go through as part of it. There's players, they give us hotel room, meals. Hockey players are genuinely a great bunch. So you get used to that adapting side pretty well, but it's the families, it's the spouses and, and all that that are often aren't talked about enough, but they go through a lot and deal with a lot for us to pursue our endeavors. I imagine it was a little bit of a shock to the system going from the sunny weather of Tampa to the snowy weather of Syracuse. It was equally as disappointing as it was thrilling to go down and just leaving a place like Tampa, Florida, and going down to the minor leagues again. And you thought maybe you'd gotten over the hump a little bit. Yeah, it's a kick in the pants for sure. But again, you just roll with it. And that part of being an athlete, you just show up to work the next day and try and get better, trying to figure out where you went wrong and sort of take that mentality. We talked a lot about coaches, but you got kind of a little preview of John Cooper, who's won several cups. What was he like to play for? There's something you could sense about him right away that was different. There was a confidence to him, a belief in him. He's a lawyer, right? So he's a sharp guy. The intuition and sense for things, very plugged in in that way. Understanding of people and concepts and themes. It was Syracuse when I went down there, like, and just the stuff to get the guys together. We had a team bowling league. We had a dartboard in the room. We had bubble hockey. We had all these different things to try and get the guys to enjoy being around the rink, to have fun being around each other, to get to know each other. Getting the whole team together, right? Not just you know little clicks and fractions, but it was the whole team. That culture, in, the, in that sense, was amazing. And the way they would sort of just wrap you up and you know bring you in. As disappointed as I was to come down from Tampa, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. But then coming into an environment like Syracuse with an awesome team and an environment like that, it was a great way to cushion the fall, so to speak. And all the guys are some of the best guys I ever played with. Great group, great room. And I think that all starts with Coop and how he did things. And then obviously a sharp hockey mind, maybe not in the most analytical way at that time, but again, concepts, themes, 
those things. You watch Tampa to this day, if a player takes a bad hit, there's five guys jumping that guy. Those sort of things, I think, is where his strength really were. And then you round out your staff with people to compliment you, right? But I think to me, that's what stood out most about Coop. And I'm not surprised at all. He's had the success he's had. I kind of cheated to look this up because I wanted to see who the assistants were. And I noticed one of them was Rob Settler, who was a tough, mean defenseman in his day. What were you able to gain from him? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I looked up him when I went there. I was like, oh man, this guy's nails. But then great guy, great guy to be around. Really positive guy, really good human being, right? And so I think just that aspect. And again, he treated me really well. And my career there was in a bit of a limbo, right? And so there was some other stuff that wasn't going my way. And so he treated me really good and was always pretty straightforward with me. And Zets was just an awesome guy, just a great human. We've talked a little bit about this with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but from a fan's perspective, taking it as opposed to a player perspective, do you think fighting is good for the game? Generally, yes. I think there's been some bad incidents and I guess the more stage fights. But even then, being a hockey fan, watching those big boys line up off an opening face-up, yeah, it's a stage fight, but I don't know about you, but you weren't changing the channel. You were watching, so... As a fan of hockey, I still love it when guys just square off like that. But obviously with fighting, I think it's just the self-policing that it creates, the accountability it creates. I played over in Europe in some of the leagues that had fighting, some of them didn't. Guys knew it, and there's definitely more crap that happens when there isn't fighting. And I understand why we're moving away from it and what we've learned about head injuries and all those things. I a thousand percent understand that, but that's aspect it's an overwhelming positive as far as i'm trying to choose my words carefully here a little bit but how the overall gameplay and the overall safety of the game i think is better with fighting and just that it can happen it may not happen but just knowing that it could happen if i do something out of line i think it definitely shapes the way guys play the way they act the way they carry themselves I am not a fan of the third man in rule. And part of that is when you have the third man in, then all of a sudden the person who perpetrated whatever ruthless aggression now can get away with it. I think the third man in and the instigators and all that stuff kind of came in because when my dad played in the 70s, and even before that, you had bench clearing brawls. You'd have these just absolute mayhem situations. So I think those rules are sort of put in to get rid of those a little bit and remove things from spiraling, right? Because if a guy knows he's going to get a game misconduct for a third man in, he's less likely to do it because if a third man comes in, a fourth is coming in, a fifth is coming in, and then all of a sudden, holy crap. So I see your point, but at the same time, I get it why they want to prevent the mayhem. Here's my, I guess, counterpoint to that is with social media right now, you get eyeballs if you were to have a big brawl or a goalie fight or something like that. I'm not saying every night, but once in a while, it brings people to the game that otherwise wouldn't come to it. Heck yes, for sure. And you look at the other sports and people will be like, oh, there was a fight tonight in the game. And it was just basically like a little bit of a pushing match. I'm like, that's not a fist fight. And then they come see a hockey game and they see an actual bare knuckle fist fight. Oh, so at the end of the day, it's entertaining and butts in the seats and the NHL still being a gate-driven league, it, it is needed. You need those people in the stands. Forgive me for asking, but I have to ask, since we talked a little bit about your dad, does yeah. he ever make light of his NHL record plus minus that he owns? <laughs> I think he's just proud, and I know we are as a family, and to play at that level in that era, right? Because I think there was only four or five defensemen per team, and was it 14 teams? My numbers could be off, but... There wasn't a lot of teams. There's 14 teams, four defensemen. You have 56 NHL defensemen. And granted, Europeans and all that hadn't sort of taken off like they are now in the game. But you're one of the best 56 to 70, we'll call it, in the world. And then when you think about some of the guys he played against, you know, playing in the Montreal Forum or Maple Leaf Garden. If he was able to find a clip from when he's playing in Montreal, and they got smoked that night. He was probably minus 100, but... One of the goals against he was on, I think there's four or five Hall of Famers on the ice for Montreal. It's like, holy crap. They were an expansion team, and obviously without the expansion rules that they have now and how they draft players, 
they were completely in over their heads. So I think the record was just more of a function of the environment than his particular play. I think you look at the rest of the players on the team, and I think there was a few guys who, if they hadn't been healthy all season, would have blown his minus 82 out of the water. So that says a lot about the team they're on. I think they were like 8-60-something and that year, like literally one of the worst NHL teams ever. You're never going to get teams that bad anymore, the cap and everything. The NHL, you have 20 to 22 average teams. You have five bad ones and five good ones. So that's basically the league nowadays, right? And then things come together. You could have a run. You could have a good team. But you sort of have to win when it's your window. And if you don't, then you're sort of back to the drawing board a little bit. The current version of the San Jose Sharks might be giving the Washington Capitals that your dad played with a run for their money. This keeps going the way it's going there. Oh, Nelly. I haven't actually watched, but I've seen some of the scores checking the app in the morning, and I don't know where you go from there. I think that will correct itself because they aren't that bad. They might be feeling sorry for themselves. The effort, the execution, the discipline might not be there the way it needs to be. I don't suspect that'll continue, and I don't know if the NHL would let that continue, to be honest with you. And I don't know what they could do, but the league can't have that. I don't know if you've ever played on a team quite like that who's struggling a lot but when you're playing on a team that is struggling and not winning a ton of games how does that work from a team perspective what is the team trying to do amongst the players to try to get out of that funk? oh boy you try everything it's absolutely miserable especially if your team expectations are higher it's one thing if you're expected to be bad and you're bad but if you're expected to be good and then you end up being bad like look at Edmonton right now. You have a meeting about the meeting, and then you talk about the meeting, and you say all the right things, but it's tough. At the end of the day, like the players aren't playing well. You can say all these things. You can have all these meetings. You're meeting with the GM, put some guys on waivers, do this. But as the whole, if it's not there, then you're in tough, and it is a miserable experience. I think you just try and find little ways to be a little bit better, to find a spark, to try and find a little bit of life, but when the losing compounds and it keeps going, what levers is the coach going to pull? He comes in the room, he can yell at you, shout at you, you suck or you suck or this or that, or he can say, hey guys, we worked hard tonight, but it wasn't our way, let's keep building. You can try all that stuff, but after a certain amount of time, if the losing persists, everybody's out of levers to pull, they're out of ideas. It's almost despondent and things can end up spiraling quick. That's why you got to nip those things in the bud quicker you run out of things to say, you run out of things to try. So I don't wish losing on anyone, <laughs> although obviously it's a reality of any sport. Throughout your career, and I always love hearing about this with weird pregame quirks and stuff like that. Who was the teammate that you had that had the weirdest pregame routine? Oh man, that's a great question. You got me on the spot. Guys were a little OCD with their stuff. Labels had to be spun out. Things had to be laid certain way. I don't know if I want to mention any names, but you see stuff that's a little crazy in that sense. And you see some of that OCD stuff that you almost worry about a little bit after a while, but just eating the same thing and getting drink at the same time, taping their stick the same way, same warm up, just the routines and how each guy had their own little individual routines that somehow was the key. I always thought was a little interesting. I got away from routines a little bit as my career went along, just because I found them to be shackles. I found them to be handcuffs as far as, oh, if I didn't do this at this time, Oh no, right? But then you realize, well, there's certain staples that you can have to get ready to play and be ready to go. But at the end of the day, it's hockey and those routines, those habits can become a burden. For you, what's a funny story that you look back on and laugh? Oh man. I remember it was shortly after one of my first call-ups, we were playing in New Jersey and there was this traffic jam. I was looking on my phone, I was like, holy crap. You're supposed to drink in 20 minutes. It says it could take an hour to get there. And then sure enough, three cops show up and we get an escort to the rink. And I remember laughing as we are buzzing down the middle of the freeways to the rink in Newark. And all the cars are peeling to the side to make room for us because we get a police escort. So we just fly through traffic. And I just remember laughing, thinking like, this is ridiculous. That was a bit of a, they talk about welcome to the NHL moments. That was a little bit of that as well. But I just remember thinking how ridiculous it was that we were getting a police escort because we're hockey players. I guess we got to get there and there is some expediency to it, but it just seemed crazy that we were getting a police escort. I remember another one. It was my first year in Portland there again, back to Portland, Maine. We were driving down to Providence for a game and we blew a tire on the freeway down to Providence from Portland and the bus caught on fire. And so guys are hurtling seats. They got under control and everybody's safe and sound, but 
I remember we got to Providence four hours late. It was supposed to be a seven o'clock puck drop. I think we got there at eight. They told us to be on the ice for warm up at 8.20. And we open our bags up and our gear just all smells like burnt rubber. And so we had to get under gear from Providence Bruins, even though we were the Portland Pirates at the time. So we were wearing Providence Bruins under gear, under our equipment. And we played the game. We got absolutely hammered. I think it was seven or eight, nothing. Kevin Danino was our coach. And he was just like, what are we supposed to do? And the owner of Providence, it was a full building that night. It was a Saturday. He had to play the game, minor league hockey stuff, I guess, in a way. But I remember that one as well. So Bosch caught on fire? Yeah, we blew a tire and the back right end caught on fire. And it was coming up through the vents. So I was a rookie. So I was in front of the bus. The guys were saying, flames. Everybody got off. Everybody was safe and sound. There's no injuries. And once everybody knew everybody's okay, we had a good laugh about it for sure. Man, I've heard some crazy hockey stories, but I've never heard of a bus catching on fire. We had one in junior. I remember we were driving up to Prince George, B.C., and we all slept on the floor of the bus. A long trip through the night. And I remember hearing this thud, thud, thud. I didn't think any of it. We got there, and all the bus doors to the compartments underneath were all U-dented in because a pack of deer had ran into the side of the bus. Holy crap. The bus driver said none of them looked like they got hurt, but I don't know how funny that one is. Deer running into the side of the bus. How did the bus not crash would be my question. I guess luckily it was full of hockey players and full of gear, but no kidding. Like if it's a moose or an elk or something bigger, then we could have been in one a bit. Speaking of bus stories, traveling in Western Canada on those bus trips through the snow. What's a bus trip like that when you're traveling eight, ten hours through the snow in the middle of the night? Eight, ten hours? We'd have ones that were 18 or 20 hours or more, I remember, because we were in Portland, Oregon. You're an hour from the Pacific Ocean, and you'd have to go play in Brandon, Manitoba, which is basically middle of the continent. So you'd get on the bus at 7 or 8 at night, drive through the night, stop somewhere for breakfast, get back on the bus and practice. But you have lunch after practice, and then you'd keep bussing all day, all night, until you got there at, say, 8 or 10 o'clock at night. So you'd be out in the middle of the prairies. And so you do that once or twice a year. You get used to it. You get setups going. You have a good camping mat, a pillow, and a blanket, and you sleep on the floor of the bus. In hindsight, probably not the safest thing in the world, but I always had some great naps and sleeps on the bus because especially as my junior career progressed, I would sit further back on the bus. And so you'd get the hum of the engine. So you get your nice camping mat, nice memory foam or something like that. You get on the floor of the bus. It was sort of cozy and quaint under there. And you get the hum of the engine and it would just put you to sleep. You make the best of it, right? You have movies to watch. That was the two back then. They didn't have phones or iPads. So, and the only way you could watch a movie after a game is if you won. So if you had a long bus ride home, you were flying that night to make sure you got to watch a movie or else it was a quiet ride home and a long ride home. So winning was huge on the road to get a movie because you weren't allowed to watch a movie if you lost. And then picking the movies for the bus, you had sort of the same eight or 10 movies that you just watch a hundred times over, but for some reason they never got old, but you make the best of it. That's for sure. Brendan, I want to thank you so much for joining the I Play 2 podcast and talking about your bus stories, playing in junior, representing Canada, and playing in the NHL. We'll talk about your European career and what you're doing now when we bring you back on in a few weeks. Thank you so much, and we'll chat soon. Awesome. Sounds good. Look forward to it.